0: Um, If you're new to the Bible, uh, Christians believe the Bible is the way through which God speaks with clarity and truthfulness and authority today, and that every word in the Scriptures is not something merely that God said in the past, but that God is continuing to say today. And so, sort of the main entree, if you will, in this feast every Sunday is that we open the Scriptures together and try to understand what God would say to us today from them. And we've been working our way this year through a book called Mark. Mark is one of four, uh, what what you might think of as biographies that tell us about the roughly 33 years of Jesus' life on earth in the first century. Those are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're uh, looking through Mark this year and um, about a third of the way through. So, we'll be in Mark 6, uh, starting at the second half, which will seem like an odd spot, the second half of uh, verse 6. Uh, the, uh, the translators, I think, put, the, put a break in the wrong place, and that happens every now and then. The end of verse 6, it says this, and he, that's Jesus, and he went about among the villages, teaching. Now, why start there? Well, we saw last week in the previous passage that uh, Jesus could no longer do uh, any mighty work in the city of Nazareth because, as uh, Josh showed us, the people there were steeped in unbelief. And just to reiterate what Josh said last week, I so appreciated the way he helped us think about the nature of unbelief. It's not the way we often think of it, probably. If you missed that message last Sunday, I'd encourage you to go to the YouTube channel or pull up the podcast and and listen to it. It was very, very helpful. What Josh showed us that in this passage definitely teaches is that unbelief is um, not fundamentally a disagreement about religious facts, It might start that way in an early conversation or in someone's early consideration of Christianity. But in the end, that's not really what it's about. Unbelief is about submission to God versus continuing in sin. You see, after someone hears and understands the clear and compelling evidence of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done if he or she refuses to submit to God, then unbelief does not have its roots merely in confusion or disagreement about particular facts. Now, the person remains in unbelief because they don't want to believe. They remain in unbelief for reasons of sin, namely just wanting to remain in control of our own lives instead of submitting ourselves to God. That's one reason why we shouldn't, when we're sharing the gospel with somebody who we know is not a believer, we shouldn't approach that conversation as though we can argue them into the faith. That doesn't work. And it shouldn't be the posture we try to take. We're not trying to win an argument, we're trying to see a person won over to Jesus. And so, thank you, brother. Um, So, did you spit in it? Thank you. do you want it back? <laughs> um, so, we shouldn't try to try to win an argument. We're trying to see a person won to Jesus, and our responsibility in that is simply to clearly, lovingly communicate the truth about Jesus, and then to pray, because the Spirit has to change a person's heart if they're going to respond to that gospel, and that's not something we can affect. That's not something we can do. We share, and we trust God to do the rest. Uh, years ago, some of you may, some of you may have read a, a book called The Case for Christ, or all the case for that came after that became a marketing, branding, ridiculousness, but the first book, The Case for Christ, is fantastic. It's written by a, uh, a former reporter of the Chicago Tribune named Lee Strobel. And I was serving in a church years ago that had, we had Lee uh, come, and I was young, so I was the gopher that was the driver to and from the airport and those kind of things. So, I got to spend some time with, with Lee. And Lee told me that um, his atheism was not about facts, that long after he had come to see the facts of the resurrection were true, he remained in unbelief. And he remained in unbelief because the way he put it is, if I acknowledge that Jesus rose from the dead, then everything about me has to change, and I don't want it to. That's how unbelief works. And so, Jesus, in this paragraph, um, in the second half of verse 6, had to go on to other villages because His hometown, Nazareth, there weren't people ready to believe. They had seen Him. They had understood what He said, and yet they wanted to remain in charge, Um, and so they didn't submit to Him, and therefore He went on to new places. Um, If you're on the fence about Jesus, then I want to encourage you to search your your heart today, to consider, do, do I understand the gospel, and do I see that more than any other truth or religious claims, this one is true? If so, friend, don't arrogantly hold on to your life because you will actually find it by giving it away to God. That's the great news of this gospel. So Jesus left Nazareth. Maybe he would have stayed longer, but due to unbelief, he moved on. Notice that the end of verse 6 emphasizes, we see this again and again and again and again in Mark that the emphasis of Jesus' ministry was on teaching. He did all kinds of things, but as he put it earlier in Mark, the reason I came was to preach the gospel. The the, the mainstay of Jesus' ministry was the teaching of the gospel of the kingdom. And that remains the central focus of every true church. Uh, Preaching the, the gospel on Sunday telling it to each other throughout the week, sharing it with non-believers whenever we have opportunity. That's why the church exists. Now, let's read on. Verse 7. And He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. What a weird list. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. That junk is deep. And if in any place you will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, Shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. There's a lot here to talk about. Notice first the two words, the twelve. Who are the twelve? The twelve refer to the group of disciples that Jesus had now designated to be apostles. We saw first in Mark chapter 1 that Jesus, right in the beginning of His ministry, began calling people to Himself. This is the basic call to discipleship, the basic call to be a Christian. It's the call that if you trust Jesus, you have already responded to. It's the call to be with Jesus. Now, Our being with Jesus is different, in a sense, than theirs was because they physically saw Jesus and then physically followed Him around. We obviously don't see Jesus, but He's with us nonetheless. And He said that it's better that He left because then He could send His Spirit who would be in us, not merely Jesus being beside us. So, as great as it would be to have Jesus here physically, He said for now in this time between the first and second coming, that the very best thing for us is that the Spirit would live within us and Jesus would be with us in that way. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't feel better to me all the time. It sure would seem nice to be able to get a hug from Jesus, look Him in the eyes and say, are you sure about that? That seems kind of crazy. But He's told us it's better that He is not here. And so when we feel that sense of uh, emptiness, loneliness, uh, confusion, doubt, is this stuff real? Why aren't you really here? Then confess to the Lord that sense of longing. That longing isn't a bad thing. And ask Him to gird it up your confidence, to strengthen you to believe that it's better that the Spirit's within rather than Jesus beside. So, this first call in Mark 1 is the call that we still share when we share the gospel. It's the call to be with Jesus. But these 12 had had additional callings on top of it that in um, Mark 3, for example… These were called, these twelve were called to come to Jesus, not only as disciples, but now as apostles. These are the men Jesus invested the most time in training in. These are the ones that through their apost- uh, apostolic ministry, the church was born and the New Testament was written. Their significance in the biblical story uh, cannot be overstated if you're a follower of Jesus, can you name them? Can can you name more than two or three of them? My suspicion is most of us could get the the big three, Peter, James, and John, and then we could maybe sprinkle a few in, in addition to those three, but I'd be surprised if somebody could get all 12. And I'm not saying that to scold you like you don't know your Bible, but on the contrary, most of them get hardly any airtime in the Bible at all. And most of us will get hardly any airtime in the list of important people in the kingdom of God. And even those who do, largely do their work in quiet and then are forgotten. That's to our protection. So, in this case, your ignorance is a good thing. These 12 are hugely significant, but the the Bible isn't full of tales of all the 12 and all they did all the time, and that's good. At this point in the biblical story, these 12 are largely clueless of God's full plan and their future. They're more like the ragtag bunch that's been following Jesus around and arguing about all kinds of things and getting most things wrong. But He's called them and they're being obedient to follow and He's gradually forming and molding and shaping them into the people that they would become. They're more of a hot mess here than anything else. And yet, Jesus felt confidence for the first time, for about, from, from Mark 1 to Mark 6, at this point, we've, we've covered about a year. So, if you think we're going slow, take that. So, so, it's been about a year they've been following Jesus around, and He's now sure enough that they're ready to go start doing some of what He's been doing, that He sends them out, on what we would call a short-term mission trip. Now consider what He sent them to do. If you look back over that paragraph, you'll see it. Jesus' primary ministry was to preach the gospel, to announce the kingdom, of that, the kingdom of God and that it had come in Him. Again, He did other things, but that was His central focus. And that's captured in this paragraph when it says that they went out telling people to repent. That's shorthand for... Jesus has come. This is the long-awaited Messiah. He's the only one through whom life can be made right, so turn from sin and trust Him. That's what repentance is. In, In sending out the apostles on their first mission trip, they were sent to do the same thing Jesus had been doing. They were sent to carry on His work. They were to go into a town, begin sharing the gospel with anybody who would listen, and uh, that, by the way, in, in these cultures in this time period, wouldn't have been a weird methodology to try to go about something. T- today, we tend to think if somebody's standing on the corner talking, they're either drunk or high or want money or they're a lunatic. That's, that's not what people thought at this period of time. There was no radio, no broadcast, no print media. You certainly weren't taking a a message and posting a picture on it and pushing it through Instagram. And so, the way they shared is they got together and started talking and people would gather around. But what was different was the message. This wasn't a message people had ever heard before. And it came with great authority and freedom for all who responded. They would also meet with some of those who's, who gathered and who had evident, obvious need. They would meet those needs in order to demonstrate the inbre- inbreaking. Um, I almost said inbreeding, that would have been bad. <laughs> they were to demonstrate the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. That was the objective on this mission trip. Now, this is a great place for us to mention, um, I think, the purpose of miracles in the gospel. Because if if you read the paragraph closely, what's talked about the most is that they were sent with an authority to do miracles. Many, many, many Christians today are confused about why Jesus and His apostles did miracles. Why are you confused? because people that do what I do are confused. And when the, the pastors are confused, that will result, uh, one of my favorite teachers used to say, if it's a mist in the pulpit, it's a fog in the pew. That's true. And so, I hope you pray for anyone who does any kind of teaching, because we, we bear a great responsibility that we'll be held accountable for. Churches are largely confused, if you look across the landscape of Christianity, especially in America, about miracles. This is a great spot to spend a moment thinking about them. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and also Acts, we see a bunch of times miraculous things happening. The question is, why? Why, more than in any other place in the Bible, in this relatively short amount of time, was there so much miracle working happening? Friends, the reason there were miracles in in abundance. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Like many of you, I got a lot of allergies right now. <clears throat> Miracles took place primarily for two reasons. They took place to a- authenticate this gospel that was being shared, and to authenticate the messenger sharing that gospel. Those are the reasons, the principal reasons miracles occurred. The other reasons are are, are lesser, but still important. Namely, people were hurting. They had needs, and God was showing in my kingdom eventually when I come back in the second coming, all of these miracles will be occurring for everybody, everybody who's sick, everybody who has demons, everybody who's broken in any way will be put right forever. And so, I'm giving you an appetizer that that's coming. That's part of it. And Jesus was often, and therefore his followers, his apostles, were often moved with pity and compassion. And so they met real needs because God is a God of love. But the dominant reason for the miracles is this person came claiming to be a mixture, 100% God, 100% man, with a gospel that he claimed would redeem anyone and everyone who responds in faith and repentance. And so that was authenticated by things about which no one could say, I can do that, or that's not all that unique, or "Mm, I see that every Monday at 10 a.m. They were demonstrative messages of the gospel, the gospel's authenticity. And they were demonstrative of the authenticity of the messenger. It validated what Jesus came to do. Now, why was that so important? Why were there so many of them? Well, it's because, remember the Old Testament message that a Messiah would come? No one in Jesus' day, expected Him. He's not what they were looking for. They largely believed, and very understandably so, that when the Messiah came, He would come in tremendous military power and would overthrow Rome and immediately, permanently establish a heavenly kingdom on earth. That's what they were expecting. And so, Jesus, claiming to be Messiah, had no royal robe, and He had no royal entourage, and He said literally nothing about overthrowing Rome. The uh, book of Isaiah describes a messenger or a a Messiah who would come as a suffering servant and a sovereign Lord. But no one put those two things together in the same person. They thought that was going to be two different people. Jesus came as both, and so everybody was confused. And the miracle served to authenticate the inbringing of all these things together. That's what they're for. They were signs pointing to the truthfulness of the messenger and the the message and the sentness of the messenger. Now, I'm not saying that God has used up all His miracle-working power. I'm not saying like He took the defibrillator in the first century, used it a few times, and it ran out of juice, and He can't do anything else today. But there's a reason we don't walk around seeing miracles like dead people coming back to life, and crazy, naked, tomb-living people full of many, many demons being immediately clothed and in the right mind. Can God do that today? Yes, of course. Nothing about His power has changed. Should we pray that God would do those kinds of things when we see them? Yes, of course. But you and I do not have apostolic authority. We're not sent with the same kind of power to affect the same kinds of things in the same kinds of ways with some type of guarantee that God's going to say yes. Why? We have what they didn't have. We have the authoritative record of God's work in Christ inscripturated, and we have 2,000 years of proof to look back on. Does God do miracles? Yes. Uh, Frankly, I don't have time to go into them. I've seen some, but they're not ordinary. They're not typical. They don't mark my average week or yours. Not because we don't have enough faith, not because we're fools for believing this, but because the reason for them has closed. We don't need them like they needed them in the first century. Now, it's very likely I've offended some of you. That was not my goal. And I'd be very glad to sit and talk with you after the gathering if I've stomped on your toes. I'll even pray for their healing. <laughs> but it wasn't my goal, and people think about these things very differently, but I would submit to you that what I've just said is the clear testimony of the Bible, and it explains why these things happen less today. Here's the way the author of Hebrews put it. Hebrews chapter 2. It, the it is the gospel of salvation. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Notice all those verbs are past tense this is what happened, the same thing does not continue to happen in exactly the same way. I hope this helps you understand more about miracles. Now, in summary of this, kind of summarizing this paragraph section of the message, don't miss this. Notice very clearly that this passage says, the called are also sent. The called Are also sent. Jesus called a whole lot of people to follow them, and He sent all of them. In this case, we see the sentness was an apostolic sentness. They were sent with the good news, with a particular kind of authority. But this is always the way the kingdom of God works. God calls people to trust Him, and then He sends them with a message of hope. Friend, if you know Jesus, you have been both called and you have been both sent. Why do you live where you live? Why do you enjoy what what particular hobby you enjoy? Why are you in the classes you're in? Why do you work where you work? Why do you eat where you eat? Why do you get gas where you get gas? I could go on and on and on and on. The reason is there is a sovereign providential God governing, guarding your whole life, and you're making real choices consistent with your nature, and God is somehow weaving all those things together, putting you around people so that you would share Christ. That is the reason you draw another breath To know him, love him, glorify him, grow up in him, and be sent with a message. Isn't that amazing? You have purpose beyond your wildest dreams. That purpose is to make a difference in people's lives by telling them the hope of Christ and to do it through the stuff you like. It's so cool. Now, back to a couple specific things in the text, some of the weird things. Um, Look at the instructions Jesus gave for their journey. Uh, Think first about what they needed. So, maybe you make a list before you go on a trip. Look at what Jesus put on their list. The first thing that's just assumed is they have to have been with Jesus or they're not going to know what they're supposed to tell people to repent of. So they've been with Jesus. Number 2, they needed to be sent two by two. <clears throat> what does that remind you of? The ark. It's just hysterical. <clears throat> There're a bunch of animals being <laughs> sent out. Now there's something else being said here. It's pretty it's pretty interesting. I didn't know this prior to working on this this week. This sending two by two, from this point on became the pattern of what Jesus did, and then it comes up a whole bunch of times in Acts. We covered Acts as a church, and I didn't even notice that. They're sent two by two because there's, I mean, if, if, if the goal is the whole world, every person, have the opportunity to hear the gospel the opportunity to respond, wouldn't it make more sense to send them one by one? I mean, I had tutors in math and still did really bad, but I can tell you can go more places if you split up. One by one would cover more territory. And yet, Jesus sent them two by two. Why? Well, he sent them two by two because the very nature of the work is bound up in community, and they would need to show in how they related to each other, the message is true. We're we're testifying of of a God who exists in community, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And so, there's deeply communal work happening when we share the gospel. So, it's better if there's two, there's companionship. But also probably in the background of that, which these Jews would have understood, throughout the Old Testament in many places they were told you only testify in court, you only make a claim when there is a witness. So, you need one person who's saying the thing, and you need another person who can verify it. That's probably why Jesus sent them two by two. One person preached, the other person said, that's true, amen, amen believe it. He's not crazy. That's so interesting to me. So, he sent them two by two. They needed another thing on their list. They needed unique spiritual authority. Number four, they needed the clothes on their backs and the sandals on their feet. Number five, they needed to be dependent upon hospitality. Their list included five things. Now, oddly, Probably when you go on a trip, you don't make a list of things you don't need. But Jesus gave them one of those. He said, don't take bread, meaning don't take any food with you at all. Number two, no bag. Now, Jesus wasn't saying don't take that roller. Don't take a carry-on or a check-in. That's not what he's saying. The word bag refers specifically to a beggar's bag or a collection bag. So he's saying, don't on this mission trip share the gospel and then ask for money. Take no bag. Number three, take no money. And the specific Greek word used is for the smallest coin. And so he's saying, don't take a $100 bill Of course, but don't take a penny either. Take nothing by way of your own provision. Number four, take no hotel reservations. Don't sign up at the embassy suites ahead of time. Simply go into a town and be totally dependent on whomever responds to you first. Now, notice the text says, whenever... You enter a town, the first person that welcomes you, stay with them, and then there's that clunky phrase, until you leave. He's saying, if you enter a one-bedroom shanty, and the next day, the wealthy side of town begins to respond to the gospel, don't upgrade. That would harm the gospel message stay in whatever house first welcomes you. Sacrifice, you see, not comfort, was to be the defining marker of their journey. So they had a list of do's, take this, and a list of don't, take that. Now it's clear as you read through the rest of the New Testament, Jesus in this passage isn't making a new list of Five takes and five don't takes. This isn't a new list of Ten Commandments for mission trips. This isn't permanent. But it was designed for these apostles on their very first trip so that they would be unencumbered, they would experience the urgency of their message, and they would have to find through complete dependence on God that He would take care of them. They would need those lessons for their future work. You're not sinning when you take a luggage, piece of luggage on a trip. Now, the other weird thing in this passage is this shake the dust off your feet stuff in verse 11. Jesus told the apostles when you enter a town, look for people who would respond in peace and welcome them into your homes and preach the gospel. And accompany it with good works. Miracles that demonstrate the authenticity of the gospel. But if you go in a town and people don't respond, like nobody responds, don't hang around there. That's a waste of time. Walk out of town and when you exit the town, stop and kick the dust off your feet. Now we of all people know what it's like to shake dust. This is the dustiest place on the planet. But there's more than cleanliness going on there. To shake the dust off your feet was a symbolic way of communicating something very, very important. When the Jews in previous centuries had traveled into pagan lands, their custom when they left was to kick the dust off their feet it was a way of communicating. I'm not taking any of their morality home with me. I'm not going to worship their gods. I'm not going to look at life like they look at it. Not because I'm intrinsically better, but I have a different king. And as a sign, as a warning, I'm going to demonstratively do that in order to communicate to others, you too need to come God. That's what the picture here is. It's a picture pointing ahead to final judgment. The Bible's clear a day is coming when everyone will have to personally account for what they did with their lives. Did we obey God by trusting Jesus, or did we persistently remain in unbelief? That judgment will come for all. This kicking the dust off their feet was an act of love, not arrogance. Because every place in the Bible where there's a, a, a word of judgment, it is by its very nature an invitation to respond before that judgment is enacted. To reject the gospel message is to reject the only means of rescue. To reject gospel messengers is to reject God. Now you've probably noticed In every sermon you've ever heard, the preacher didn't end his sermon by saying, trust Jesus or go to hell. That's not politically correct. It's not going to likely help people respond. And it's inconsistent with the way many passages present, emphasize the contours of the gospel. But it's true. Every person will either trust Christ or they will go in the end to a real place of unending horror in which nothing is present but the wrath of God this is why our sinness is so important The apostles were sent to carry on the work of Jesus. Jesus called them, He trained them, the churches built on them, and the gospel declared by Jesus spreads through those sent by Jesus. That was true of the apostles, and in slightly different ways it's true of us. You see, there are no apostles today their job description has closed. Their role was to get the church up off the ground and inscripturate the stories. They've done that. Apostles no longer exist. But every time we open the Scriptures, we hear them speak. God speaks through them. And we speak on behalf of their message as we share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be wary of anybody that tells you they're an apostle. They may mean well, but they're claiming an authority that God has not given them. All of us today have authority as messengers of Jesus Christ, but we're not writing more Bible In conclusion, brothers and sisters, God has called you. You're living your life with Him through the Spirit. And He has sent you, and you have a wonderful message. Share it courageously, compassionately, trusting that God has many people in this city for himself. Father, is there important things we've discussed? Would you please use your word for your glory? May it have its right effect on each one of us. I pray especially that if anyone here has never responded to this gospel, that today they would. In Jesus' name, amen.